All right, as we're sitting down, if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. You know, the study that we're doing comes from this chapter. It's the road to Emmaus. It's right after Jesus was resurrected. I want to start here tonight and use this as a launching point for what I, I hope the Lord's going to do for us tonight. So chapter 24, verse 13. I'll read it for us. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, Things. They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, It is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray. Lord, we want this study because we believe that all of Scripture testifies to you. Lord, it is our prayer that we see you in Scripture and that our hearts burn within us and we immediately get up and go and tell people Jesus is alive. So Lord, speak and open our ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I've been looking at that passage and I have been thinking about the study so far. I've been thinking about Josh when he got up here and talked about Genesis. What are the three words he emphasized over and over and over? Does anybody remember? And he died. Does anybody remember when we get to Genesis 15? The covenant with Abraham. Can I tell you that when he was talking about that, my heart burned within me. Can I tell you that when I left, I was telling people, you've got to hear this. I had the same reaction that these men had on the road to Emmaus. And when Drew was talking in Exodus, and he gets to the Passover, my heart burned within me because I saw the picture of Christ. And I left and I told people, you've got to hear this. And so that's the reaction I want tonight when we're looking at Leviticus. I want our hearts to burn within us because we see Christ. Who can tell me anything in Leviticus that you know anything at all? One thing. What is Leviticus about? I'll tell you, it's a lot of sacrifices. It's a lot of ceremony. It's a lot of laws. Up to this point, the Bible's been written in narrative. It follows people. It follows their story. You get to hear what they've done, what God does to them. You get to Leviticus and something stops. And you start this progression of God outlining the sacrificial system for the Levitical tribe, for the Levites, one of the, tel- one of the 12 tribes that God selected and set apart to be the people that offered up the sacrifices. So if you're just reading in the Bible and you get through Genesis and you get through Exodus and you've got this full power of a narrative, Leviticus just puts the brakes on that. And it doesn't pick up narrative again until about the 8th and ninth chapter when you start talking about the consecration of Aaron and his sons. So up to this point, when we enter into Leviticus, I had to really work to get my head wrapped around what's going on. And this is how I'm going to explain to you my understanding of what Leviticus does. It starts right after the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. It immediately picks up at that point. Over and over in Leviticus, you hear, God said to Moses, God spoke to Moses, God's verbally speaking to Moses, and saying, say to the people, say to the people. He's communicating through Moses all of these truths that he lays out. It starts with the sacrifices that are acceptable. The first one is a blood offering. It's either a bull or a sheep or a goat or birds. The next is a grain offering. The things that we're going to notice about this is God doesn't say bring an animal. He doesn't say go out and hunt a wild deer, go trap a rabbit. He outlines which animals can be brought to him. And we're going to think about Israel and their state and realize what that means for them. God doesn't say go pick up scraps off the side of the road that you hit with your car. Bring a good animal without blemish, one that you've raised, part of your livestock from the herd or the flock. And we're going to think about Israel in a wandering period, in Exodus. They don't have a lot of these to spare. So my mind started looking at this and realizing that this is very, very costly. We don't think twice about it because we're not in that same position. So I started thinking, what would this look like for us? I started thinking, what if we had to give up a car as a sacrifice? Some of us have that. What if God outlined for us that we have to take a car bring it to the church and not give the keys to somebody, not sell it and get the money, but burn it. It would not be fun. It would be costly. It might actually be a deterrent for sin. So I started thinking about that. 
I wondered what it would be like if our sin cost us to give up our phones. If we, to be right with God, had to give up our cell phones and burn them. Now, I don't know that it's a direct comparison, but it gets a picture that it cost Israel something. This was not free. God provided manna in the wilderness. He provided quail. He did not provide bulls, goats, sheep, and birds. So this is a costly thing that he's asking. It's not free. He outlines how you can use these sacrifices and which ones are to be used when. He starts talking about laws um, concerning the sacrifices used for a guilt offering, for a peace offering, for a sin offering. He says, the sacrifices I've outlined, here's how you use them. And the whole system, what do y'all think the whole system is about? Is God just wanting to see how much we can give up? Is he wanting to see if we're willing to give up? Like he asked Abraham, give up your son. Is he just saying, I'm just going to see how much you're going to give up? If you're willing to give up, is that the point? Or is it more than that? God's not asking that we just give up for the sake of giving up. It's specific. It's a sacrifice. It's an animal. It's, a, it's blood being spilled. It's life being lost. It takes us back to the garden. When Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, what did God do? What did he clothe them with? When Adam and Eve made an attempt to clothe themselves with fig leaves, and God said, that's not sufficient. You trying to cover yourself is a failure. It's not good enough. What did God clothe them with? Animal skins. Where did those animal skins come from? Animal. Animals had to die. And it's all a picture. It's all a foreshadowing of Christ. We know we're going to that. So I want us to know that these sacrifices are not free. They're costly. And they're also vivid. Here's the picture that is being presented to us. Some of the sacrifices require that you take your hands and touch the animal on the head so that you're close enough to see the life in its eyes. And while your hands are on the animal's head, you slit its throat and kill it. This is vivid. What would this make us think? Would this make us think that sin is light? Or that our offense against God is not great? Or would it be a reminder that sin is deadly and that sin deserves death? That's what God is using these for. It points to Christ and it shows the enormous offense of sin. And some sins outlined in Leviticus don't have a sacrifice to be made right. It's just kill them. And that's important. Not all sins in Leviticus that are outlined require a sacrifice to be made right. Many of them say stone them to death. Kill them. That's important. We live under a different system. There is no sin that we commit that the blood of Christ cannot redeem us from. For the tribe of Levi, for the people of Israel, that was not the case. That's important for us. So Leviticus outlines what sacrifices are acceptable, when to offer the sacrifices. It outlines who can offer the sacrifices. Not anyone, only specific people. Who 
who in here believes that the sacrifices offered up by the people of Israel would take away sin? No. Why? It wasn't sufficient. That's a good answer. Then why does God ask us to do it? Is it useless? What's that? It's a picture of what Christ did. It's exactly right. Y'all know after King David sinned with Bathsheba, it was after that that he wrote Psalm 51. I wonder what Jesus would have said when he's talking through Leviticus. I wonder if he would have talked about Psalm 51 when he's talking about Leviticus, talking about the sacrifices, and these two guys on the road as they're walking step in step. I wonder if he would have gone here and pointed this out. David says in Psalm 51, speaking of God, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. David lived under the sacrificial system. He didn't live in our day and age when we have the benefit of knowing that Jesus came. And David says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. I think David saw in the shadow, the substance. I think his eyes had been opened to see that it pointed to a Savior to come. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 1 through 4. Looking for Hebrews, it's near the back. Hebrews, James. Hebrews chapter 10 has this to say. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What God set up for the priestly tribe to do and for Israel to do to make atonement for their sin did nothing to purify them did nothing to cleanse them did nothing to bring forgiveness otherwise Hebrews 10.4 is a liar when it says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins 
God set it up as the picture, as the shadow, leading us to Christ. Paul says in Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. And that's what we see in Leviticus. But it's not just the sacrifice. It's the man to offer it. What would happen if you bring a sacrifice that is a right sacrifice to God? What if you were not the man that God ordained to bring it? You'd have a dead animal. That's all that you'd have. In Leviticus 9, I told you it's a lot of uh, regulation and law, and the narrative picks up in 9 and 10 with the consecration of Aaron and his sons. That's when the story following people picks back up. And if we move to Leviticus 9, starting verse 6, Moses says, I love this, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. And here we see the man ordained to bring the offering. But is he able to bring the offering without first offering for himself? No. So we see a weakness in this man. I want to move real quick to chapter 10. I want to show what this weakness is capable of. In chapter 10 it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the man who was just consecrated, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. I want to make a point here. These were the sons of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest, chosen by God. If you remember the last time I stood here, I talked about Aaron. And when people said, we don't want him to be the high priest, God vindicated him by making his staff bud and come to life. The same way that we see Jesus was vindicated by his resurrection from the dead. This is God's chosen man, and this is his son's. I want you all to see something important here. Salvation is not passed down through lineage. Do you understand that? God does not care who your mama and your daddy are. He looks at you. For all intents and purposes, these were preacher kids. For all intents and purposes, these were religious leaders. They were doing the work. And they went rogue. There's another thing that this teaches us. You do not 
come to God without the proper sacrifice. If you do, it will end in you being burned alive. And I mean that literally. If at the end of your life, you stand before the Lord and you offer up strange fire, anything that is not Jesus, you will literally be burned alive like Aaron's sons were. Y'all know this. You've heard it. It's pictured here in Scripture. This is a foreshadowing in itself. There is one sacrifice. There is one man to offer that sacrifice. Any other sacrifice, any other man, will result in being burned alive. Very sobering. So we have to have the right sacrifice. We have to have the right man offering it. Let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, when we're talking about the right sacrifice and the right man, Listen to this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. Flip over to chapter 10 again in Hebrews and look at verse 5. We stopped at verse 4 just a minute ago. Verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, all the things outlined in Leviticus. These were offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, let me read that again. But when Christ had offered... He is the sacrifice, and He is the priest offering the sacrifice. He is both. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. It's important for us to know what that is. To be sanctified is to be made holy. None of us were born holy. Only God is holy. For us to be made holy, we have to be sanctified. And that's to be set apart. When we are talking about holiness, which Leviticus deals very heavily with, in Leviticus 19, we see God tell the people. He says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Y'all have been in this room enough times to know what holiness is. It is set apart. To look at God as holy means that there is nothing else in his category. He has no equal. He has no enemy that rivals him. There is nothing else like him. This is one reason why scripture says things like, your ways are not my ways. Which, by the way, if you want to know what the ways of the Lord are, look to yourself and then find the opposite. This is why we, when we're in the river of sin, struggling and flailing about trying to get out, can never do it. That is not God's way. God's way is for us to stop and look and say, I am helpless. And if I have any hope, it is that the Lord reaches down and pulls me out. That's God's way. And it is not our natural way. God is holy and he demands that we be holy. How? How do we be holy when we're not? If I asked you in this room to be 10 foot tall, you would think that's impossible. And that does not compare to God saying, be holy. We are not holy and we cannot be holy, yet God demands it. How? I'll tell you how. Look at Leviticus 20. Verse 7. God says this, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And this is the answer. What we cannot do, God does. It is God who sets us apart, and we see it with Israel. If we just follow the rest of this chapter through, just after verse 22, verse 24, he says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. That word is severed, cut off, chopped off, brought away. God has separated Israel from the other peoples. 
God made Israel holy to himself. The thing that God demanded, God did. Why? Why did God make a people separate to himself? Keep reading. In verse 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God will not have people near him for all eternity that are not holy. It is he who sanctifies. It is he who makes us holy. And this is why Peter says that we are being built into a royal priesthood and that we're holy. It is God who does this. What is impossible for man is possible with God. I want to finish with this. If you can find Titus, good luck. <laughs> Turn to Titus is after first and second Timothy. Titus chapter 2. I'll read it for us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, declare these things, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Leviticus outlines for us there is one sacrifice. It is Jesus. There is one priest. It is Jesus. There is one way to be close to, be, to God. It is through holiness. We cannot do it. It is God who sanctifies us and sets us apart. And the reason he sets us apart is so that we can be his and if he does not set us apart, we will be lost forever because we belong to someone. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that these truths of who Jesus is, the foreshadowing of him in the death of bulls and goats, foreshadowing of him through Aaron and his sons and the priestly tribe. 
make our hearts burn. It is you who give us any understanding. Deuteronomy tells us that the secret things belong to you. Lord, we do want to see you, who you are, what you have done, through the power of your word and the leading of your Holy Spirit, make that true. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.